Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to another podcast in the mobility space that I think you'll enjoy, the Rideshare Guy podcast by Harry Campbell. Harry has become a trusted expert on all things rideshare, and he may be the only person ever to have driven for Uber and also interviewed Uber's CEO on a podcast. On the Rideshare Guy podcast, Harry interviews a wide range of industry and thought leaders in the rideshare and mobility space. You can find and subscribe to the Rideshare Guy podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles and the future of transportation. Welcome to season four. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. Today we're talking with Michael Granoff, managing partner at Maneve Mobility, a venture firm investing in a wide range of companies in the transportation and mobility space. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your venture firm, Maneve Mobility? Sure. So Maneve Mobility is a venture firm based in Tel Aviv. And as the name suggests, we specialize in mobility. And that's all we do. Everything around automotive and the new mobility world. So that obviously includes things around data and connectivity on vehicles. It includes elements of autonomy and technology enabling autonomy, vehicle architecture, uh, such as in-vehicle sensors, and and the large category of business model innovation and mobility service model type companies. And we're based in Tel Aviv, Israel. In our first fund, most of our portfolio was based in Israel, but so far in our second fund, only a uh, uh, small part of our, our, our initial investments are, are based here, and uh, we're investing globally at the seed stage in mobility startups. So tell us a little bit about business model innovation and how some of your portfolio companies are involved in moving the space forward? Well, we believe that basically around September of uh, 2008, when we had the 100th anniversary of the Model T that ushered in the industry, the automobile industry in its uh, mainstream sense, and where we had a century uh, of a pretty static landscape of individually owned and operated uh, internal combustion engine-driven vehicles. That September 2008, not only did we happen to have uh, the collapse of Lehman Brothers that set off the chain reaction of the financial crisis and the bankruptcy of GM, but less noticed at the time was the introduction of third-party apps that really, we think, introduced the century of digital mobility, which is more about buying trips than it is about buying vehicles. And obviously, that's enabled ride-hailing companies like Uber and Lyft, and it's enabled micro-mobility companies like Bird and Line, and 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 our own micro-mobility uh, company uh, called Revel, based in Brooklyn, New York, that uses an electric moped, a shared platform. Um, we launched a thousand of them in Brooklyn and Queens and New York in May, and have already surpassed a million rides, and have so far expanded to several other cities, including Washington and Austin. You mentioned geography and how your first fund was focused on companies in Israel and your second fund, which I think is $100 million, Is that right? Correct. That you're focused more broadly. Can you tell us about differences in the mobility space in the various geographies in which you're investing? You've seen a broad swath of companies in 
uh, a number of countries. What are some of the differences that you're seeing? Well, in our home country in Israel, the country is well known to have technological expertise around things like sensors, software, cybersecurity, data connectivity. And it's really in those areas where a lot of our first portfolio came from, such as Arbe Robotics that uh, does, uh, does radar and uh, Guardian that has an in-vehicle sensor and Autonomo that does monetization vehicle data in the clouds of car companies. So that was really a, a lot of the, the focus around our, our first fund and um, really, uh, uh, I think, emblemizes some of the particular strengths uh, in the Israel technology ecosystem. Israel is not strong on the consumer side and companies like Revel, another company that we have called Beepi that does car subscriptions uh, out of Spain, um, you know, is, is another example of a type of company that we're beginning to see. And I should say that, like, we, we didn't have a, a particular strategy to be as, as global as we're becoming, but we really uh, covered a lot of ground in terms of the overlap of, of, of Israel's expertise in the mobility sector. And we began to be really attracted to a lot of these um, more consumer-facing business model innovation, mobility service type uh, companies that we that we saw in in places as far wide as uh, as Australia, the U.S. Uh, and Europe, and 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 we've seen deal flow now from lots of other places as well. So that's that's really where the focus has been of late. How do you think the political environment around climate change is impacting the success of cities trying to move in this direction of more multimodal solutions? Well, I think there are a lot of moving pieces and concern about climate is certainly one of them. But I think the most important megatrend that we're seeing globally is urbanization. And the urge on the part of the younger generation to live more densely is something that I think is being seen in China, in, in Europe, in, in the U.S., and, and even here in Israel, where uh, policymakers actually tried very hard to encourage younger people to move into peripheral parts of the country, no matter how steep the price got, they found uh, ways to really be centered around the large uh, central cities of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And I think when you have the combination of denser living and the availability of digital tools, all of a sudden car ownership becomes uh, more burdensome and other alternatives become more attractive. Now, it so happens a lot of those alternatives are also better for the uh, air quality and better for uh, the climate situation. Revel, with its electric mopeds, is really replacing car trips with an electric uh, two-wheel solution that's less congestion and less emissions. So I think these things kind of go hand in hand, and it's hard to tell what, the, what all the motivations are, but I think more density and more digital is going to lead to more sharing and more electric. Looking at the evolution of trends over the last few years, what do you think were some of the most interesting developments in 2019 and maybe contrasting with 2018 or 2017? How have you seen uh, the trends in transportation really shift? Well, I, I think a few years ago, when people spoke about new mobility, when they spoke about what comes after the dominance of individual car ownership and, and operating, um, everybody kind of had the idea of the robotic taxi. And I think that permeated not just the industry, but uh, well beyond and captured the public imagination. 
And uh, without a doubt, over the last 12 or 18 months, the notion of robotic taxis or level four shared vehicles has uh, entered what the, the Gardner folks call the trough of disillusionment. And what I think has gotten uh, a bit lost for some in that transition is all of the other opportunity that has uh, been opened up uh, in, in terms of uh, micromobility, as I'd say the most prominent example, scooters and, and, and electric bikes showing up in hundreds of cities around the world uh, simultaneously, and now other alternatives like Revel. I, well, I do think that uh, automation does have uh, a large role to play, and even the robotic taxi model, it, I think, is, is likely to show up in, in, in many cities uh, at some point, probably uh, later in, in, in the coming decade, I think the environment that they enter will actually already be uh, significantly shifted by some of these trends towards lighter, multi-purpose vehicles. I think one of the most fascinating things to watch in the coming uh, couple of years is this experiment, 200 parallel experiments going on in cities around the world, which are uh, having to grapple with where, where do these new types of vehicles go? People, pedestrians don't want them on the sidewalks, and, uh, and, and, and drivers uh, don't want them on the roads. But um, more and more, I think, we're seeing that there's a, a real appetite for these alternatives. So how do policymakers react? I think given the number of parallel experiments we have, we'll see some outliers, and we'll see some interesting examples uh, start to take place. I think if, if Mike Bloomberg was still mayor of New York City, he probably already have picked an uptown and a downtown avenue and made them micro-mobility lanes open only to vehicles of 500 pounds or less without emissions. Uh, and I think uh, you will see some cities do some radical things and have success with them, and that will begin to change the landscape. What advice would you give city leaders in terms of trying to strike this balance between folks who want to still drive a traditional car and those who are promoting new mobility solutions. How do you think cities can create political support for doing, as you suggest Mayor Bloomberg might have done, in terms of creating more space on the streets? Well, I think it's going to take a lot of creativity, and it's also going to take a recognition of the fact that we were able to, for a long time, overlook the fact that, for example, we were giving away a pretty scarce resource for free, which is road space. Many cities allow cars to park for free, and almost all cities still allow cars to drive on their streets for free. I always think about the fact that if uh, you were to drive to a meeting in midtown Manhattan on a weekday afternoon and put your car in a garage, it would cost you $70. But if you had a niece or a nephew who would drive the car around the block for you while you were in your meeting, it'd be more convenient. You wouldn't have to go fetch your car. And other than whatever you want to reward your niece or nephew with, it doesn't actually cost you anything, even though your car is taking up space in the most in-demand real estate in the United States and causing emissions and other externalities. And it's free. And uh, obviously, uh, some cities have begun to think about this. London has already implemented a, a, a low-emission zone, an ultra-low-emission zone, wanting to expand that program. New York has finally, uh, in theory, agreed to a congestion charge, but as it's supposed to be implemented, it's uh, pretty blunt, and I don't think will be viewed as fair or necessarily so effective. But um, <clears throat> between 
those types of, <clears throat> of policy prescriptions as well as uh, sort of opening up the um, notion that bikes and, and scooters and other smaller factor vehicles can be much more efficient and should be and, and, and you should be looking for ways to accommodate them rather than seeing them as a, sort of impinging on some right of cars that, that somehow takes precedent. I think the more that, that policymakers can keep an open mind in those ways and come up with creative solutions together with industry, with, with startups and, and, and with fresh thinking, I think it'll, it'll be better for everybody. Is there a place for cars in cities going forward? Or do you think we're going to get to a place where cities ban cars altogether in, in downtown core areas? Well, um, I, you know, there are some cities that have experimented with part of their, a part of their cities not having, having cars and have had success and uh, some of the folks have been popular. I, I don't think any type of sort of wholesale ban is realistic and uh, it's not fair, certainly, to people who um, don't have the physical capacity to take advantage of other forms of mobility and who maybe also have to deal with uh, things like uh, small children and, and car seats. And there are endless variations. But I think if the right experiments and price signals are sent, um, we can uh, reduce uh, the inefficiency of having lots of single occupancy large vehicles uh, running around, particularly at hours when there's a lot of demand for that for that road surface. Um, you know, I, I think again with creative solutions based on technology, based on price signals, um, we can increase the daily throughput of streets without necessarily banning cars, but with maybe pricing them, maybe encouraging different times of use for them, and also accommodating the other uh, forms of mobility for those that uh, want to embrace those. What about micromobility companies? In the last few years, there was a big push to invest in electric kick scooter companies doing shared mobility. You mentioned your investment in Revel with electric mopeds. Where do you see the focus going forward? I think we've already seen uh, tremendous innovation in a very short period of time, and I think we're just going to see more of that. We, we've seen several business models in recent months for various foreign factors of vehicles, and I, I think uh, more experimentation is, uh, is, is likely to happen and likely to be embraced by the public. Kick scooters around Tel Aviv are very numerous and uh, seemingly uh, improve uh, each month. And so I, I think uh, this is a, a trend that's here to stay. The economics obviously devils in the details, and I think a lot of, a lot of these companies uh, are, are seeing uh, huge variations in um, their profitability based on models they put out, based on weather, uh, based on lots of factors. But um, the, you know, the, the, the central notion of diversifying the alternatives for city residents and, and, and visitors to um, move around, I, I, I think, is, is, is what we'll, we'll continue to see more of them in the decade ahead. Earlier, you mentioned business model innovations. And with the electric kick scooter companies uh, doing shared mobility, there has been some criticism that it's a model that is not sustainable or 
uh, becomes too expensive, if it's going to be profitable. What about direct-to-consumer models, and how do you see innovation continuing to occur with respect to how we pay for or rent micromobility devices? Well, before there was bird or lime or wind uh, here in Tel Aviv, there were lots of scooters, uh, lots of electric scooters that people bought and, and used to commute and uh, took with them into, into their offices and into their homes. And there is still a lot of that, even though there's even more of the shared platforms. And again, I think it's going to be a case of diversity. For some people, it's be more convenient for them to have their own, to know that it's always available and that it isn't uh, too burdensome for them to have to uh, secure it or take it with them. But for lots of others, obviously, the shared platform works better. And, you know, I think that diversity is, 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 is the key word for the age of digital mobility, uh, unlike um, uh, really the last age, which had uh, very little diversity. I had mostly five passenger sedans with one occupant driving around with uh, taking up lots of space and spewing a lot of emissions. So I, I think it's really all of the above. And another criticism of the existing form factors in micromobility has been the lack of cargo space or the lack of ability to put your kids on it. This idea that it's just for the young man, you know, driving between VC meetings in a downtown area and that there aren't a lot of other options for how to use the vehicles. What do you think about iteration on form factor into a larger size to solve different problems for people? You know, I firmly believe that we'll see the whole gamut between the simple kick scooter and the uh, small passenger car um, on our city streets in uh, just the coming years. And that includes uh, smaller vehicles, such as uh, what Renault has tried in Paris and other places with the Twizy um, and, uh, and, and smart car type lookalikes. And, um, and I, I think we'll see, we'll see more of that. But like I said, if all of the people who used to uh, ride around in cars and want to and are able to use other forms of lighter weight mobility for smaller trips within cities, uh, it leaves more road space for, for, for those who do have to take children who are in need of a car for certain uh, trips and for certain periods of their life. Uh, it, it leaves more road space for them to have that option realistically without you know, congestion overcoming everybody. So you know, it, it again comes back to the idea of diversity, uh, both uh, among uh, form factors and sizes of vehicles, types of vehicles, but also among um, you know, uh, what is this particular trip for and, and, and how can it uh, most efficiently be accommodated? I saw in New York some uh, delivery companies were going to start using cargo bikes in lieu of trucks for deliveries, which seems like a very positive direction. What are you seeing in Israel in terms of uh, food delivery or package delivery? Is it creating traffic on the streets? And how do you think micromobility vehicles could be used in that space? Well, we already do see lots of bike delivery of food and other 
small packages. And, you know, they, there's been a lot written recently about the demand for curb space and about the problems that that's causing in lots of cities. And, you know, with our portfolio company, Bolt Pike, one of the things that we found is on food delivery, um, really uh, an e-bike uh, is, is the optimal form factor. And in fact, they've gone a step further and really found uh, the uh, perfect e-bike for food delivery and then made that available to couriers on a, a short-term basis. So it doesn't require a large investment for a, a gig that may only last some number of weeks. And so, you know, I, 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 I think uh, it, 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 it again comes around to, um, to the, same, the same idea that there'll be an increasing diversity of vehicles available for different use cases. And, you know, the, for delivery uh, within, within cities, whether it's cargo bikes or uh, e-bikes of, of, of various forms or, or, or other smaller vehicles than large delivery trucks and, and vans, I think we'll, we'll just continue to see more. We saw at the Micromobility Europe conference the introduction of autonomous micromobility using teleoperation for now. What are your thoughts on the importance or impact of using teleoperation or autonomy to reposition or to deliver micromobility vehicles in cities? We think it's a great idea, and in fact, uh, one of our portfolio companies, uh, Phantom Auto, has uh, recently signed a deal with Postmates to do exactly that. It, it really enables Postmates to use their um, terrific serve um, delivery uh, vehicle um, with the peace of mind that if there are any issues that come up, they can be resolved remotely, that a, a driver can take it over, um, and, 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 and one individual can... Uh, oversee many uh, of these delivery vehicles, making them extremely efficient. And, uh, you know, uh, in, in terms of um, repositioning uh, for micromobility, that's another uh, use case for teleoperation, which I, I think we'll see increasingly happen. You know, just even, even having the ability to move a vehicle as a block or two can uh, make a big difference in terms of its convenience and its likelihood of in, in, in continued use by, by customers. So it's a, it's a great option to have. You mentioned some investments in things like cybersecurity and other transportation-related services. Are there areas of growth you see in that piece of the spectrum? And what are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, cybersecurity is certainly one of the fields that Israel has a uh, very, very strong reputation. And, and we have two companies in our portfolio that are around cybersecurity. One company called C2A is uh, very specifically around on-vehicle cybersecurity. The other is called Upstream, which is a more of a mobility cybersecurity provider. It operates on a cloud-based system, so it can secure uh, entire fleets, fleets of Vehicles that, you know, maybe belong to a, a rental company or even to an OEM or to, for example, a, a delivery company that uses the delivery bus. So it's a very versatile platform and is seeing a lot of interest from across the spectrum. So we think, you know, upstream will be able to provide lots of services, not just around uh, cybersecurity, but in, uh, in fraud uh, prevention and, and other, and other uh, services. So. Absolutely. Those are two, two of our portfolio companies that we have high hopes for. What about data management and data platforms? 
I know there are a number of companies looking at things like mobility as a service, looking at creating platforms to interface with cities or to help companies manage vehicle fleets. What are you seeing in that space? Well, obviously, uh, much has been written about data, data being the new, the new oil, as it's been said. Data will clearly play a, a large role in the future that relates to the cybersecurity companies that I mentioned. It also relates to Autonomo that I mentioned earlier that's helping OEMs to monetize some of the data coming off of their vehicles. And we've got a company, Aurora Labs, that has a uh, self-healing platform for uh, vehicles that obviously are using data to provide over-the-air services to be able to um, perform, um, you know, software updates and, and to fix uh, problems before they become serious through software and uh, data transmission. So, you know, on the uh, micro-mobility side, lots been been written about the availability of data to make these networks even more efficient. We're seeing that through uh, Revel, and, and, I'm, and I'm sure uh, everyone else in the industry um, sees the tremendous potential to increase efficiencies uh, through data as well. One criticism of all these uh, new mobility platforms and devices has been the impact on public transit in cities. We see new modes, whether it's Uber and Lyft or Bird or Lime coming out with these fantastic new mobility options that people are excited about. But the criticism from cities really is what about this infrastructure for public transit that we've already created? How can we move more people per square foot using buses and trains instead of these new mobility options when they are so convenient and attractive to people. How do you think public transit needs to evolve or, or respond to this variety of new mobility options? I think it's all of the above. And I think these new mobility options are actually a terrific complement to existing transit. In, in many instances, just not uh, sufficient, even if there is the, um, uh, even, even if the public would look to it as a first choice. Uh, I'll give uh, one recent example. I was recently in London and I, I carry a, a folding helmet in my bag at all times now because I, wherever I am, will gravitate towards a micro-mobility solution a lot of times in urban environments. Uh, but it uh, happened to be that, uh, not so surprisingly, it was pouring rain in London, and so really wasn't that realistic to take a, uh, an e-bike. So I uh, went to the Tube, which, interestingly enough, it's, you can now do very conveniently with Apple Pay. Um, you don't have to stand around and figure out where you're going and what it will cost. You put a credit card and get a ticket. You can just show up at the turnstile and use your Apple Pay and, and go right through the, the turnstile, which is very convenient. But as it happened, um, it was so crowded that I was in a wall of humanity waiting for three successive trains six or eight minutes apart to pass until I could even get onto the train. Uh, and that is with one of the best mass transit systems in the world in the tube in London. So uh, the more dense we continue to live, uh, the more options we're going to need, uh, both uh, older options uh, like the mass transit options that are available, but newer ones as well. And, you know, on, on the periphery, it can be 
very complimentary. If you were an entrepreneur looking to spend your time on a problem in the mobility space over the next few years, what are some of the areas that you would consider focusing on? Well, I, I think a lot of the areas I mentioned, but one in particular, I think, has to do with, you know, how do you help uh, cities create frameworks to put proper incentives so that people have the ability to say, you know, I, I, I need to make a particular trip and I have a, a, a broad window of time in which to do it. And when can I do it when it will be uh, when, when there'll be the least demand for that particular band of, of space? And you know, we, we spoke about data. Um, the more data that becomes available, the more opportunity there is to figure that out in a scientific way and maybe attach price signals and then be able to, to spread some of the demand for uh, the thoroughfares uh, across vehicles and across time. And, you know, I think there are probably um, several business models within that framework that we'll see emerge in, in the coming years. And I think uh, creative entrepreneurs can find ways to help cities send the right signals to, to people about how to use that time and space more efficiently. Great. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. It was a great discussion. It was a pleasure to, to, to be here. Thank you so much for having me and look forward to speaking again. Thanks again to Michael for joining us. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes, please check out our blog on Medium called Smarter Cars. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.